Good morning and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Please stand as we enter into worship.
Take a moment to greet those around you, and the students could be dismissed at this time.
Well, good morning. My name is uh, Mike Hedman, and I oversee Caring Ministries here at the church. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're an intergenerational community, a family of families, if you will, and part of the greater family of uh, the University City area. We're thrilled to have you here today. And for those of you who are new, if you open up your bulletin, you can see there's a place there for you to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about who you are, and uh, you can become feel more a part of who we are. Also, if you have a prayer request or any need, there's a place inside the bulletin as well for a, any prayer requests that you'd like to write down. If it's more of an immediate need, we have a prayer garden around the front of the church. I'll be there after the service and others who will pray with you directly and go to the Lord in prayer with you in that regard. As far as announcements, there's a couple of things I'd like to address with you. First of all, I'd like to remind you that we have a Thursday evening community uh, Bible study. It says it's in the Surf Shack. It's actually where we've moved to the Welcome Center to make it a little more uh, comfortable for us. There's a, a light meal that's provided, and then we have a, a phenomenal Bible study. We'd love to have you there. It's an intergenerational Bible study designed to meet the needs of this community we have here. So I think you'd find it very interesting and helpful. I've also been asked to share just briefly about two uh, Bible apps that I find, uh, two or three Bible apps that I find helpful. Uh, my personal favorite, I've, I've got one, I've had one for years called Loridian. That's very good. But my actual personal favorite is called Olive Tree Bible Study. It's fantastic. Every translation is available. Every uh, study Bible that you can think of is available. My entire spiritual library at home is now on my phone, my iPad, and my computer. So that's Olive Tree Bible Study. If you'd like to learn more about that, just come see me in the prayer garden after the service, and I'll demo it for you so you can see. Well, th again, thank you for coming. God bless you, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for another beautiful day in your creation. We praise you, Lord, for your steadfast love towards us. Your faithfulness endures forever. You are worthy to be praised, and may our worship be a pleasing aroma to you. Father God, we know we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. And we humbly confess our sins and ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I thank you for each person here today and for those who are watching from afar. You have richly blessed us, Lord. And as we gather this week to celebrate Thanksgiving, may we never forget that our blessings flow from you, Lord, who are full of grace and mercy. Our family, our friends, our church, but most importantly, may we never forget that we have been forgiven and redeemed through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I lift up the LJCC community and every person here and would ask that you would meet our needs, heal our wounds, and calm our souls. Move within our hearts, Lord, giving us the strength and wisdom to step out of the boat in order to fulfill the mission you have created for us. Open our eyes and our ears to what you would have us do to further your kingdom, and let us not be afraid to do, even in the face of fear and concern of how others might view us. We pray, too, for our nation and our leaders that they might have wisdom and discernment. Our world is suffering, Lord, 
lay your healing hand upon us all. Now, Lord, speak to us through Steve as he shares your word with us. Open our hearts and our minds to what you would have each of us take away this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for all of it and give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you're ready for Thanksgiving. And uh, I hope uh, as you come into this Thanksgiving, uh, you wouldn't be distracted by turkey or turkeys at the table or anything like that. But maybe in a new and fresh way, you could recapture what Thanksgiving is all about. When I think about Thanksgiving, uh, historically, I think about people who didn't know that they were going to have another <laughs> year uh, to live or to be together as a family or a community. And by God's grace and overwhelming odds uh, in front of them, they got through it and got to a place where they could actually stop and say, maybe we're going to make it. And they had a Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, somehow that gets lost in the wonderful cultural expression of Thanksgiving and uh, some of the, the parts of Thanksgiving that is, is distracting, uh, trying to pull a meal together, pull a bunch of people together. Uh, but one of the things that makes Thanksgiving profound is that it was a near-death experience that people were facing. Where are you in your life right now that feels you know, like an emotional near-death experience or a physical near-death experience or a financial or, or in, in any aspect of your life? What are you? What have you been through this year that you're getting to? A, you're coming into a season where you can say, "Thank God, I didn't know I'd make it. I wasn't sure what it would be like uh, to get to this point in the year." And maybe you're in the middle of some stuff uh, in terms of health, uh, career stuff, uh, school stuff, family stuff, whatever it is. Uh, claim that moment at Thanksgiving to to open your heart with gratitude to God uh, that you're here to be, even be able to. Um, eat bad turkey and, and be with a bunch of people you don't see very often. You know, redeem that ceremony uh, and that, that celebration. Um, and this, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because this is really the best way to understand this book of Ruth. As we come to the conclusion of this four-week series in the book of Ruth, uh, we're talking about some people who didn't know that there would be another season of Thanksgiving for them. There wouldn't be another occasion to say, God is good and I'm so glad to be experiencing his goodness. And so we've walked through the first three chapters. We're now in uh, chapter four of Ruth. And the book comes between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. And it's really a picture of what God wanted to show Israel uh, and all who would come later to read uh, this story, that, that this is what it looks like to walk with me. And so it, it's a little tiny snippet of a book. If you're trying to find it, good luck. It's better to go to the table of contents and look it up because it's such a thin little you know, two, three pages amidst this big Bible. And so the, the country was embroiled in bad leadership. Uh, the country was embroiled in, in economic hardship. There, were, there was massive income inequality, if you want to use a modern term. And so people were being bought and sold, and people were not feeling like this was the place of promise that God had called us to be a nation uh, and, and a light to the nations. And so in the middle of that, uh, in the midst of that, God raises up these people and, and gives us a, a, a look at what it looks like to be a righteous person in a community of people uh, walking righteously with God. So uh, there's a lot going on in, in, in what could otherwise be perceived as an interesting love story. It's a bigger love story, and it's a real occasion for Thanksgiving. And so we're, we're coming to the big Thanksgiving part of this book of Ruth uh, today. So here's the big conclusion. Let me give you a recap. If you've never read the book or you just, you're just joining uh, with us today, 
Um, Ruth uh, is a woman uh, who grew up as a Gentile, non-Jew, in a place called Moab. We call it modern-day Jordan. Naomi uh, is her mother-in-law. Naomi uh, is part of a long-standing, long legacy of people who have lived in a place called Bethlehem. Uh, originally called Ephratha. So she, her family has been in Bethlehem so long that they're um, Ephrathites. They would say, no, no, we, we, we have been here a long time in Ephratha and, and now Bethlehem. Uh, and she's had such a great heritage uh, that her family named her Sweetness and Pleasant. Because how good it is to be born into this family uh, in this place. And yet, uh, she faced some really serious challenges to that sweetness and that pleasantness, to the point that she and her husband, Elimelech, uh, Melech means king, and uh, Eli is, is uh, an adjective, and so the idea is that it's this honor the king is his name. Uh, they, but they find themselves in a time of famine, and they've got two adult sons, and so what do we do? I mean, there's a lot of us here. And this was a standard thing that would happen cyclically. Climate events, uh, war events, uh, in this case, a natural event, probably uh, uh, every, every several years you'd have these giant grasshopper-like things, you know, uh, that these locusts would swoop in and, and devastate the harvest. And so in a place that didn't have what we have now, if you go to Israel today, it's so lush, it's so beautiful. Uh, I hope you get to go at some point. It is an amazing, amazing place. The desert blooms. And parts of it look like Napa Valley. Some parts of it look like Palm Springs. Some parts of it look like La Jolla. It's just gorgeous. Uh, so they can manage that kind of thing now. But then if you had a famine uh, driven by a drought or driven by an infestation of locusts or the disruption of war, uh, it was everybody uh, running for the exits. And so Naomi and her husband Elimelech said, look, um, there's not any way that we're going to be able to survive this thing on the on the land that we have and the water available. Let's go uh, to Moab in what's called the Jordan River Valley, 50 miles away from Bethlehem. And let's just uh, settle there for a while and then come back when the famine is over. Well, a little while becomes 10 years. And toward the end of that 10-year period, Elimelech dies. Her two boys, who've now married these lovely Moabite girls, these young women from Moab, uh, they die. And so Ruth is now 10 years into it, bereft of her husband and her, her sons, and looking at these wonderful young women who she loves as daughters, and, and realizes, ah, I, I, there's nothing I can give you. Because in that world, uh, if you did not have a man in your life, um, you had no social security. You were vulnerable. You were at risk. And so Naomi's only option uh, is to go back to Bethlehem. Thankfully, the famine has ended. So word has, has, has trickled into Moab that, hey, the famine is over, you might want to consider coming back. All this stuff occurs, so she decides to go back. She tells one of her both the daughters-in-law, go back to your families, you have a bright future ahead of you. There's, there's nothing I can offer you. I can offer you no future, no hope. Meanwhile, they become believers in the God of Israel. And with much pleading, she convinces uh, uh, one of them to go back to her family. But Ruth will not hear of it. She said, I'm not gonna, I love my family, but I'm not going back to my family. You are my family. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Your God is my God. Your people will be my people. And in her grief and in her loss, Naomi said, okay, okay. Now, they're only 50 miles away, but it was light years in terms of culture, 
uh, and geography in terms of getting there. So it was not an easy thing to go that 50 miles. So they make the trek back. Now, am I losing sound? There you go. Is that better? How's that? Okay. Um, as they go back, I, I, I imagine it occurred to Naomi that, what am I bringing this young woman to? She's a Moabite. Our people hate their people. The Jews looked down on the Moabites. They found them reprehensible beneath their dignity. And she's a widow. There's nothing, nothing more uh, vulnerable in that day and age than a widow. A young widow, oh my gosh. Unless she goes back to her father's house and remarries, uh, is bleak. And as Naomi, Naomi is processing this, she's getting more and more depressed uh, as she comes back to, to Bethlehem. And everybody looks at, their, at her and they see this on her face. They go, Naomi? Naomi, Naomi. So it's like, hey, you're back, you're back. Wow, what happened? And she can see it in their faces, right? And she says, don't call me Naomi. My life is not pleasant. Call me Mara, for my, my name should be bitter, because that's what my life is. Everything was great, and then I left, and I'm coming back bereft of any hope, empty. And so she's super depressed. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm, I'm just going to ask you the question rhetorically. Have you ever been bummed out about anything? Oh, really? It's an unusual group, you know. Now I'll ask you this question. Uh, have you ever been so bummed out that you didn't want to live? Have you ever been so bummed out that just, not just emotionally, if I could just, you know, uh, go shopping or take a hot bath or have a nap or a good cry, but, you know, a day after day, it's bleak and bleaker. And after a while, you think, the world would be so much better without me. I wouldn't be a burden to my family and my friends. Uh, I hope you haven't experienced that, but that's a very common thing for people to experience. It's called depression. We treat depression in this country and often as a, just a, a momentary, just get over it. You should be so thankful for who you are, for what you've got. And fail to see, it's like saying to somebody, I know you've got stage four pancreatic cancer, but get over it. Have a better attitude. Because clinical depression will kill you if left unaddressed and untreated. Um, uh, a, a dear brother in Christ um, called me and said, hey, um, a guy who's been a mentor to me, taught me how to surf, led me to Christ, uh, has been like the, the, a big brother to me. And this guy's now, you know, in, in his 50s. He said, this, he, he took his life last week. He's one of the most epic Christian men I've ever known. But he battled with depression. And he did everything he, he could to fight that battle. Uh, and it seemed like he was making a lot of progress. And he took his life. So I said, well, come over. And he said, and I've been asked to do the memorial service for about 150 people. And uh, I said, well, come over. And let's just spend a couple hours and talk through how to do that. Because what, what does the gospel say in that moment? Yes, the gospel says there's, there's a hope. Um, your friend went home too early. God didn't call him home, but he went home too early. He's, he's safe with Christ. That's a word of hope. But another word of hope would be to say, folks, let's just talk about depression, how devastating that is, and the guilt and the pain that everybody associated with uh, that feels. And why wouldn't we recognize it as something that is as devastating as cancer? Treatable, perhaps. Perhaps curable, maybe not. But this is where the community comes together to say, look, what you don't have the strength to do, we will do with you and for you. And so um, I, I debriefed with him this week. I said, how did it go? He said, man, it was amazing. Just a sense of, of God's presence there and, and the hopefulness and the, and the sense of forgiveness 
and, and understanding toward this dear brother who touched our lives so profoundly. And this guy was, if I, if I had the time to just lay out, to describe him and, and everything he had and did, he was so beyond belief awesome. Um, after the last service, uh, um, uh, not, not after last service, but um, uh, actually after the last service, a number of people said, hey, you know, I, I, that's touched me. And I was talking to a guy this week who would be similar to this guy. And we were talking about the whole idea of depression and what this guy had, had gone through and how he'd ended his life. And this guy said, you know, I've never talked to anybody about this, but I'm feeling that. And I said, well, you know, you're a candidate to feel that in some ways because you're, you're carrying the world on your shoulders. And everybody expects you to be strong. So this was Naomi. She was so immersed in depression and so overwhelmed with the pain of her loss, her grief, and now the disruption of, okay, I left and now I'm coming back and call me bitter. My life's over. But, but, but God sent Ruth with her for a reason. Ruth is probably, you know, 20. What does she know at 20? Enough. She knew enough that God is here and God is with us and God will be for us and I love you more than I can even express, Naomi, and it's going to be okay. Not because we have any power. We have none in our culture. We're both widows. We're poor. I'm a foreigner. They hate me. But we have the Lord. And so on that basis, when they got back to Bethlehem and everybody didn't know what to do with Naomi, Ruth said, you know what? Um, it's the beginning of the harvest season. I'm going to go glean and, and she understood that there was, there was a law, that was part of the Hebraic law, that if uh, you were a widow, if you were a foreigner, and you were poor, you could go glean. You could show up at somebody's property during the harvest. Now, you couldn't be one of the main harvesters, but following the harvesters, once they'd got the main harvest, you could ask for permission to glean. And by all rights, the landowner was obligated to let you do that. Now, they could be hard-hearted and say, no, go to that field. But really, they had to let you do it. So Naomi um, uh, says, okay, fine, yeah, whatever. Ruth shows up at this place and asks for permission to the point that she says, I'll go after everybody and all the animals. They even had an order of who got to go, and then when it got to the animals, they had an order of the animals that got to go. So she, she says, I'll come up behind all that and I'll glean. And so she came back with all this grain because it went so well for her. Now, Naomi said, oh, my gosh, where did you go? And now she's kind of coming out of her funk saying, I didn't even think about telling you where to go. We have relatives. We have family. And you just went. And who did you land with? Who did you, who's land? And he, she said, oh, this guy named Boaz. Oh, my gosh, Boaz. He's part of our extended family. He's a man of high regard, a noble man above reproach. He's an amazing guy, wealthy, accomplished, compassionate, a righteous man in every way. God has truly been good to you and to us that you would land at his property. <clears throat> now, none of this was lost on Boaz. Uh, he came to check the harvest, and he pulled over one of the managers, and he said, how's it going, and who's that young woman? And the guy said, oh, my gosh, Ruth uh, from Moab, go figure. She was here early in the morning. She's worked relentlessly all day. She is incredible. And, and Boaz and clicks, oh, my gosh, this is Naomi's daughter-in-law. The woman I heard about that got back from Moab. Elimelech is dead. Malon and Killian, gone. She's a widow. Oh, my gosh. She's a Moabite in Israel. This is not going to go well for her. 
He, he makes sure she knows who he is. He says, hey, um, I know your situation. Uh, I've told my men to protect you. Uh, stay with the women. Uh, glean through all my fields. They had a 50-day process, barley to wheat. So at the beginning of it, she has a 50-day run of getting enough food to get through um, uh, the next months. And so she comes home and tells Naomi this. Naomi's like, oh, this is amazing. Well, it gets better. It gets better because as Naomi comes out of her funk, she says, you know, I don't have much of a future of hope. I mean, in the Lord, certainly, but at my age and stage, I, I can't think of what I'm going to do. But for you, we need to find you a husband. And you know, we have, a, we have a, 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 a tradition here. It's called the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer. The, the Hebrew word is goel. The one in your family, it, it, these are massive extended families. The one who has the capacity financially in terms of influence to be able to go on your behalf and intercede for you and get justice done on your behalf. So sometimes, right now, it was happening in this, stage, in this stage of Israel's history. People being sold into indentured servitude for a loan of 40 bucks. They could never get out of the loan. So if they had something, uh, like uh, if they had somebody in their family who could go to bat for them, that person would say, hey, I understand that my second cousin, twice removed, um, is indentured to you. Right. Uh, what do they owe you? 40 bucks. Here's the 40 bucks. They could redeem you. In the case of a widow like Ruth, that person could marry you, take you on as a wife, and then all of the heirs out of that union would benefit you and your deceased husband. It's a very interesting system. It's their version of Social Security. And it's a very honorable system in a very, very uh, difficult time. So we're going to see that Boaz, Boaz Boaz artfully handles a very, very important negotiation to get this done. Because part of, the, of this guidance and counsel from Naomi is you need to have a personal meeting with Boaz and explain things to him. And so this was last week we talked about this fantastic story. Uh, go back and, and read chapter 3 or, or watch the video. And so she has this very, very personal conversation with Boaz and she says, you know, Boaz, I, I want you to be my guardian redeemer. In a sense, inviting him uh, to marry her. He's blown away. He said, oh my gosh, I've been watching you for these 50 days. You're a woman above reproach. You're a noble woman. Everybody sees that. You're held in high regard, even though you're a Moabite, is kind of the subtext. I'd be honored to do that. I've noticed that you haven't chased off for wealthy men or young men or any men. You've been really focused on taking care of your mother-in-law. But there's somebody who is actually uh, in, a, in, a, in a situation ahead of me who could be your redeemer. And so let's see how that goes. Because what's going on here is it's how do you acquire the assets of these deceased people? Who has the right to buy Elimelech's land, Malon's land, Killian's land? And of course, with that right was also the obligation to be the redeemer kinsman for the deceased of a for the deceased widow. So here's a complicated story. And so um, as he leans into his mission, we want to cheer Boaz on. Why? Because we yearn for things to be right in the world, don't we? We want goodness to prevail. And so far in the story, we've seen the incredible goodness of Ruth, the incredible goodness of, of Naomi, the incredible goodness of Boaz, and the wonderful thing that God has been doing in this place called Bethlehem, this tiny little village, in the, in the, in the context of a very disrupted, a very... Com compromised nation. This is going on. So we want it to come right so badly. And so that's what we're going to look at. 
Because this next last chapter confirms our hope that a better world exists and that our lives count for some purpose yet to be seen. So that's where we're going. So Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. We've seen this pattern throughout Ruth. These, these coincidental sort of comments, these coincidental markers by the writer of the story, like, wow, and then all of a sudden that happened. But what we've also seen is that it's not just random coincidence. It's God's abiding presence in the midst of our circumstances. So when I asked you that first part leading up to Thanksgiving a, a few moments ago, God is present in your present circumstances. Don't, don't pray for a coincidence. Pray that you can be aware of the actual presence of God in your present circumstances. So just as the guardian redeemer came along, wouldn't you know, Boaz said, hey, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Now, because of Boaz's stature and the high respect uh, that he engendered from people, this guy said, okay, sure, I'll sit down. It gets better. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said to them, sit here. And they did so. Well, this is a big deal, to be able to take 10 of the top leaders in Bethlehem and say, by the way, oh, you guys, come over here, sit down. This is significant numerically, 10, because when, if you remember, a 1,000 years before this, 900 years before this, Abraham, who we're going to talk about next week, discovers that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, oh my gosh, that's disastrous. Well, why? Because they're so evil. All right, but what if there were 100 good men in the town? God said, sure, I, I preserve it for 100 good men. And so now we start, now the negotiations are open, right? And Abraham is now saying, well, what about 90 good men? What about 80 good men? Pretty soon it gets down to, what about 10 good men? And God said, that's it, 10, no, no less, 10 good men. That 10 good men uh, is called a minion. And a minion, not like in Despicable Me, minion, but a minion, M-I-N-Y-A-N, is the minimal number to establish a synagogue. It's a minimal number to establish a legal proceeding. It says these people represent the nation, the people of God, the promise of God. And so he says, let's pull up 10 of the, the, the leading men, and they're going to be the audience. They're going to be the impromptu court to see what proceeds from this conversation. And then Boaz said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. <laughs> By the way, if you don't really care a whit about the Bible, uh, you still want to pay attention to this. This is better than any business book you read or a two-year, $100,000 MBA program from UCSD or SDSU, because the negotiation in this is brilliant. Boaz says to the guy, well, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention, and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. Just looking out for you, thought it was a good deal, your big opportunity today. But then he says this, but if you will not, kind of an unusual negotiating uh, tactic here, but if you will not, tell me so, I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. So he's giving this guy an out if he doesn't want to buy it. But it's property, are you kidding me? It's real estate in a place that has very little of it. And this guy immediately says, I'll redeem it. What's there to consider? Sure, consider it done. I'm in. It's mine. Then Boaz said, oh, oh, by the way, one more detail. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. 
It's a toxic addition to the deal. A Moabite, oh my gosh. Yes, the dead man's widow. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz is very, very smooth. Oh, by the way, you have to acquire the Moabite of a dead guy. That means all the progeny from your union go to the dead guy's family, not to you. But it's a really good deal, and I defer to you. At this, the guardian redeemer said, whoa, 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 hold on a second. You didn't mention the Moabite widow and my obligation. But he's kind of stuck now because he already said, I'll do it in front of the ten guys. Ah, but Boaz was so smart, he gave him an out. So then this guy backpedals, says, well, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I got an idea. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Very smooth. The guy can save face by saying, all right, I'll pass on this. And Boaz is already in place to act. Now we get this parenthetical comment about how deals were done. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transaction in Israel. Oh, if it only worked that way now. <laughs> so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, oh, well, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his, with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. This is high praise. This is super significant for this village. They're saying, we really, really affirm this. Now, they're honoring a Moabite woman at the level of Rachel and Leah, who were, if you remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were Jacob's two wives, from whom come the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, Judah, is the father of this tribe that inhabits Ephrathah, Bethlehem. So they're going, oh my gosh, this is full circle. This is awesome. May this happen just like it did for them. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is getting thick with genealogy. Except that Judah... Uh, had a son who died, and his widow's name was Tamar. And through a curious situation, a series of events, Tamar uh, uh, has twins. She, she finds a redeemer through whom she has twins, one of whom's name is Perez. So they're saying, oh my gosh, we are of, we're, we're Perizzites. Judah, Perez, all of us. We're that family. That's us. Oh, my gosh. Tamar was a Gentile, like Ruth is a Gentile. So there's all this reinforcement, all this confirmation. It sounds like an amazing coincidence, doesn't it? No, it's God being present in these circumstances. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Last week, in that private conversation that I told you about, 
part of the setup for that looks like seduction. Uh, if you remember that, uh, you heard me naively saying, oh, this is not about seduction. You're going, oh, my gosh. Happened late at night, this little tete-a-tete, come on, you know. No, it was not about that. This is all about seduction right here. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. They were seduced by the love of God. They were free to express that love in this sexual relationship. So when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Now it's deep, right? Because all of a sudden you go, yeah, Boaz is a guardian redeemer. But this is signposting. This is pointing us to a future guardian redeemer who will come out of little Bethlehem. We'll talk more about that next week. May he become famous throughout Israel. Ah, this guardian redeemer will in fact be famous throughout Israel. And this guardian redeemer will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, high praise. You can have seven Israeli men. Give me one daughter like Ruth, right? Talk about lifting up women in a, in a, in a, in a culture that, that treated them um, with less regard than you'd like to think. She's better to you than seven sons. She has given him birth, this son that will provide for you. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. This was uh, the first documented um, example of a Jewish grandmother. She immediately takes the child in her arms. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Does that ring a bell, that name David? The father of David. Wow. This gets very interesting very quickly that this Gentile woman coming out of this disastrous situation meets Boaz and they marry and they have a son who has a son who has a son whom God says, you are a man of my own heart and, some, and, the, and the Messiah I will send will be of the throne of David. Oh my gosh, what a picture. And so anybody reading this story, hearing this story when it was first told, and then reading it when it was placed as part of that bundle of scripture, uh, the Hebrew Bible, all of a sudden they realize, oh my gosh, this is what a righteous person in a righteous relationship, in a righteous community does. Things happen that look so tantalizingly coincidental, but ultimately they're the hand of God working through difficult circumstances. In your difficult circumstances, the hand of God is present even if you can't see it or detect it. If your heart is breaking or broken today, if you are this close to saying, I can't even deal with life anymore or some part of it, know that this is a message for you. God is at work in you. His hand is on you as you open your heart and your mind to him. From David to Jesus, that's what we're talking about. We're going to pick this up when Advent starts. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. We'll be welcoming and celebrating a new associate pastor coming on our staff next week, and we'll be launching into the Advent season. But let me wrap up Ruth. Vulnerability has been a theme in this book. Vulnerability. Blatant vulnerability. Famine, death, widowhood, poverty, foreignness. All the things that would be... Uh, putting you at such high risk that, well, why even try? But we saw that strength is rooted in disciplined vulnerability. 
What is disciplined vulnerability? Oh, I got to tough it out? No. Oh, if I just hang in there longer, I can get it right? No. Disciplined vulnerability is a discipline to say, you know what? I'm going to stop trying to carry it on my shoulders. I'm going to allow, <clears throat> I'm going to allow God uh, to rewrite my story. I'm going to allow God to determine the plot of my life. Not passively, but actively. So the discipline is leaning into him. My mission, Lord, in life is to know you and to walk with you, period. And out of knowing you and walking with you, all the good works that I do, all the good things that come my way or that I make happen, I make happen, are the fruit of that disciplined vulnerability to you to trust you above all else. It's not passivity. It's radical engagement in a deep, transformational relationship with the living God. And so this strength that, we, that emerges out of this is rooted in disciplined vulnerability. I will trust in the Lord. Your people will be my people, etc. I don't know. I'll go gleaning today. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow, but today I'm going to go gleaning. And in the midst of doing those ordinary next steps, mundane things, you don't wait for the big, shining miracle, though sometimes those do uh, get you launched. But often you see the miracle is more of a slow motion, slowly revealed miracle of God's presence in you. Oh, what a coincidence. It was Boaz's field. Hmm. What a coincidence. Boaz noticed you among the hundreds of workers. Oh, what a coincidence. We're related to him. Oh, what a coincidence. He has a heart for you. Oh, what a coincidence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So vulnerability reveals strength through truth-telling. Here's who I really am, and here's where I really am. Here's what I really need, what I know I can't do but for God. It's about good character. Good character is not being perfect. Good character is saying, I want God to shape my character after his own goodness. You might be feeling like my character is anything but good. That's okay. Invite God into your character, and it will become good. Well, I'm pretty good. I don't know if I need God. You're, you're way more vulnerable than you know. It's foregoing lies. It's foregoing subterfuge. Hey, I wonder if I could work this against that. I wonder if I could know. It's foregoing lies, foregoing subterfuge in order to achieve a righteous outcome that blesses everyone. How? By listening to God, by learning from God, by walking with godly people. Not expecting them to tell you what to do and how to do it, but to say, walk with me. I'm open to your counsel. I'm open to your feedback. We are so isolated in our, in our culture, we don't, we don't allow that to happen very easily. We're not very comfortable with that. And therefore, we don't talk to each other. We don't give each other the kind of feedback we need. We'll do it, we'll do it anonymously, you know, cyberbullying. We'll, we'll do it third party, you know, in, in a way that there's no accountability. But it's very hard for us to give, give people feedback or to receive feedback. I got to tell you something. Um, when it comes to my weaknesses and my, my um, I guess, blind spots, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm the first to admit it. But here's the problem. I'm usually the last to know. I'm usually the last to know. How will I possibly know what my blind spots are if somebody doesn't say, hey, I've been noticing this about you. Are you aware of this? You don't know when you have that little thing in your tooth that little thing on your chin, that little thing that fell on your shirt. You don't know until somebody says, hey, um, you might want to look in the mirror and, you know, oh my gosh, I had no idea. 
The beauty of vulnerability is, is that we invite people to give us the feedback. How are you experiencing me? What things do you think I need to know that I'm not going to know otherwise? Uh, somebody said to me this week, you know, all, all these people are saying this about you. I said, well, they haven't said it to me. Until they say it to me, it's pretty much useless because I'm not getting the benefit of it. Do you ever have that feeling and that experience? Are there things that you know if you told people it would be really awkward socially, but if you do, it might really help them? Because this is what gives uh, opportunity for righteous outcomes. What is righteousness? Just being rightly related, properly aligned with God and with one another. It's not about being perfect or even right. It's just being rightly related and rightly aligned. When we're rightly related and rightly aligned in marriages, in families, in friendships, in businesses, in churches, amazing things happen. Coincidences happen. Why? Because God's abiding presence becomes obvious. Because he works through flawed and fallible people. Those are the only kind of people he has to work with. There's no other alternative for him but to work through those kinds of people, us. And so we often call this uh, a win-win, when all things work together for good. We call that a win-win. But think about that for a second. It's not a win-win until after somebody took a major risk, a major risk of self-revelation or personal revelation. Can I tell you what I'm feeling? When this guy this week told me that he is at his wit's end, he doesn't know if he can take another step and he'll go another day, that was a very vulnerable moment of him to say that to me. Because he didn't know if I would say, oh, you, you have so much to be thankful for. You have so much that, you know, you should be really, you know, this, you know, and don't even worry, you know, and he'd think, oh my gosh, that's what I'm hearing from everybody. Instead, I said, wow, are you paying attention to that? And he kind of was caught off guard. He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, that's God getting your attention. And it's not just saying I, I pray about it, because prayer is absolutely essential and powerful. But if you show up at my house and your bone is sticking out of your arm, you go, I think I need prayer. Would you pray for my arm? I say, can I pray for it as I drive you over to Scripps? Uh, and then you're going to get your arm you know, healed. You're going to put it in a cast. You're going to go to surgery. And I'll keep praying for you. And I'll be praying for you as the arm heals. Right? You see the power of this? We have a Hebraic way of looking at things. That is total body. We don't, mind, we don't have a Greek view. Of my, my head is here. My body is here. A Greek view is that I live out of my head, and whatever my body does is what my body does. Every anorexic girl is living out of her head in denial of her body. Every person who has major problems that they won't deal with uh, because it, they're too embarrassed, they have too much pride, is it living that disassociative kind of life. What, what God allows us to do is to live a Hebraic life, so to speak, is we're entire people. So it's prayer and therapy. It's prayer and medication. It's prayer. So if I, saw, if I showed up and, and um, okay, I, I hurt my shoulder this Thanksgiving. I'm going to be with some family, and one of them is an orthopedic surgeon. I'm going to say, Scott, I think I, I don't know what I did to my shoulder. It takes a rotator cover, so if I do this, it hurts. He's going to look at it. He's going to do he'll, he'll take my hand, do something like that. Oh, he'll, he'll go, oh, this. And this is how we fix it. And if you saw me and I had a sling, you would go, you wimp. You got a little sling on your arm. You say, hey, good move immobilize it, you'll be fine. Everything counts in how God works. Was gleaning a spiritual solution in this situation? Well, I guess it was connected to God's work, yeah. Was being depressed part, yeah. 
was, yeah, everything counts, right? Everything counts. We call this a win-win when it all works together, but we forget that up front there's a risk that has to be taken. You have to risk being open. You have to risk being vulnerable. And those of you who have made these risks to people you trust would say, oh my gosh, everything got better once I did that. This is what a church is supposed to be, a bunch of people willing to risk coming out of anonymity, and I've got it all together, and image management, saying, here's what I'm wrestling with, here's what I'm struggling with, here's where I'm hurting. I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and I don't seem to be getting any answers. I've tried this, it's not working. Am I a total failure? Should I give up? No. But you need to, you need to risk doing some things that might be uncomfortable, like sitting down with a therapist. It might be risk doing something uncomfortable, telling your friends, I'm really struggling with depression. Would you pray for me? And my, by the way, I'm getting this, this, this. I'm on this medication. I'm getting more sleep. And then I'm, you know, I'm going to wean off that, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever the process is, powerful, powerful, powerful. When we go through this process of restoration and rehabilitation, and this is what the story is telling us. This is what it means to lean into your mission. Your primary mission is to lean into the Lord. And having leaned into him, and going through the process of healing and restoration, you might also all of a sudden too, and you will discover your gifts, your capacity to give and to bless other people. And so the reward is in doing the right thing for God, regardless of the inevitable difficulties and risk. Final thing I'll say this, we, we know we can't control outcomes. All we can control is our commitment. All your commitment is your willingness to say, yes, I'll take the next step toward God and toward solutions that maybe put me out of my comfort zone, but put me into a place of safe care that might be very difficult to deal with the issues that I carry in my life. But out of that process of dealing with those, oh my gosh, God just releases so much power and energy and strength in me. We're going to touch on this next week when we talk about Abraham as well. So commitment is how we put belief into action. That's why the story of Naomi, of Ruth, and Boaz stands out in the difficult period of the judges. It's why it still speaks to us today. We don't know anything about the period of the judges. It's an inspiring story of what righteous commitment, righteous commitment, not perfect behavior, but righteous commitment. So I'll ask you the question, do you believe your life has a purpose? Do you believe that your life has a purpose and not just in a wishful thinking sort of way? Oh yeah, we're all beautiful. I'm saying, does your life have a purpose in the context of God's specific plan for you and God's plan to redeem all creation? Because you have a purpose, and it has to be situated in that, or you'll never understand your purpose. You'll go through the rest of your life hoping for better coincidences. Versus saying, in these circumstances, God is working at his plan in redeeming the world, and I am included in that. And so I ask you, what's your mission? How are you leaning in? Final thing I'll say is this. I, was, I asked randomly some people through the course of my week. <laughs> so one guy asked, hey, so what's your mission? I know this guy's an authentic, deep faith. What is your mission? And are you leaning into it? Because you know what? I'm embarrassed to say I don't know what my mission is. So I'm not really leaning into it. I'm just trying to get through the day. I said, what would it mean for you to, to figure out what your mission is? He goes, I think I understand it. I'm just kind of afraid of it. He's an awesome person. I said, but just you asking me in a way that's non-threatening and not judgmental, I'm going I'm to come back to that and look at that. I said, wow, it's cool. Great. Another guy said, said a similar thing. Another guy said, you know, I'm in recovery and my marriage has come together. I'm not, I'm not uh, self-medicating with alcohol. And in this recovery process, God has given me access to a bunch of people in a whole different socioeconomic 
place than I am, that I'm getting to help and mentor. It's amazing. I guess my mission is, is getting well and leveraging what God is doing in me to bless these other people. And it's amazing the conversations I'm having. I said, that's fantastic. Now he was getting inspired asking the question. I asked another person, what is, your, what is your mission? What are you leaning in? He goes, you know, my mission is to, to use my wealth and influence uh, to, to reach out to uh, kids that are at risk and vulnerable toward uh, substance abuse. And uh, we're reaching about 2 million kids, and I guess I'm leaning into the mission because this year I want to reach 25,000 more. I thought, man, that's awesome. This guy could be doing anything else he wanted to do. And he spends most of his time thinking about this. I asked another guy. I said, hey, so is it, in this conversation, he's talking about the fact that in the last 180 days, he's spoken to 900,000 people in ways that have changed their lives. The, 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 the absolute response is that it's, it's changing their lives. I said, 900,000 people in six months so let me have the temerity and audacity to ask you how you're leaning into your mission. He goes, I tell you right now, I'm getting a rest. I told uh, everybody on my team, I can't do anything for the next two months. I'm so, f I'm so tired. I thought, brilliant, brilliant. Leaning into his mission is getting a Sabbath, is getting a rest, is getting renewal. Where are you? Do you need therapy right now? Godly therapy. Do you need a, a community who can love you and support you and doesn't try to tell you what to do, but will support you in doing the right thing? Do you need a vacation? Do you need a long nap, a bath, and a good cry? I don't know. What do you need? What, will looking, what would it look like to lean into your mission? Would it be to say, I cannot live up to the expectations of my family anymore? I cannot live up to the expectations of my friends. I can't live up to the expectations of the critical voice in my head that I've internalized from my origin, my family of origin. I cannot live with my bitterness toward these people. I cannot live with my resentment at that. Can you let go of all that and say, Lord, I want to lean in to my mission, which is to know how to love, um, to receive your love, and to live in your love, and to be able to give it to other people. And if that includes therapy, uh, education, uh, medication, uh, uh, relocation, I'm open to all of that. I hope that's where you're sitting today. I hope your Thanksgiving is a moment of truth for you to say, Lord, I want to give you gratitude for the fact that you've given me the freedom to be honest and open about who I am and what you want to do in me like you did in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And that Advent to you would be what it's supposed to be. I'm anticipating the movement of God in the world as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And what would that look like for me to be caught up in the renewal of this and the redemption of this world as I embrace Jesus in a fresh way as we celebrate the beginning of Advent uh, next Sunday. So, Lord Jesus, these are our prayers. These are my prayers for me, my prayers for my brothers and sisters, my prayers for those who are here who maybe don't even believe in you. They spend most of their energy defending against you. And I pray, Lord, that we could have a, a fresh look, not only at ourselves as people beloved by you, but a fresh look at you as the one who loves us and that your love uh, makes all the difference. And that no one and nothing can separate us from your love. So Lord, with all the capacity you've given us, may we make a commitment to be open to you in a fresh way uh, as we celebrate Thanksgiving, as we celebrate the beginning of Advent. As we receive the offering of this morning, Lord, may we offer ourselves to you, opening our hearts and our minds to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I hope you're feeling a little bit more alive right now uh, because the Lord is in this place and he's alive in all those who open their hearts and their minds to him. 
Maybe you are in a place where you just are holding on barely. Don't, don't go through that alone. Don't go through that alone. Uh, maybe you've come through it and you feel like, wow, I'm, that's behind me. It's not behind you. Uh, your life is, is right now and ahead of you. So don't ever think that you grow out of depending on God one day at a time. And don't think that lie that you have nothing to offer him or other people. You are the hope of the world because Christ is the hope in you. And if we can pray for you before you leave today, go right around the corner. There's a lovely prayer garden, and there'll be people out there who will pray for you. You can tell them what you want prayer for or just say, pray for me, and they'll do that. In the meantime, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk with him in newness and fullness of life one day at a time, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I come back next Sunday. We'll celebrate the beginning of Advent and welcome our new associate pastor, Dave Thompson.